Welcome to another episode of Macro Crunch with Sean Bill. Today I have Arun Marathadar uh, in from Washington, D.C. Arun, thank you for coming into the Silicon Valley and making time for us to sit down. Always a pleasure. pleasure. Kind of fun that uh, Arun and I both went to the same small liberal arts college in Crawfordsville, Indiana, uh, Wabash College, which is uh, only 800 students, so kind of uh, shows you what a small world is that today we're meeting in the Silicon Valley. And Arun and I have known each other for about 10 years, um, so for quite a while. Uh, so as an asset owner, you know, I generally break things down into growth, income, and diversifying assets, and we try to kind of capture our exposures in those three buckets. And I always like to use Don Pierce's quote, a mutual friend of ours, that, you know, we really kind of categorize things by how do you actually generate the return. So if it's a change in principle, you know, we're looking at uh, growth. If it's a, you know, coupon we're clipping, it's income. And if it's uh, some kind of diversifying asset, we'll throw it in there. Um, your, your stuff uh, really kind of sits on top of that. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what you're doing and how you're thinking about the markets. And uh, you've, you've become quite well known for smart rebalancing as a strategy that pensions can overlay on top of their core uh, asset allocation. Uh, so maybe uh, you can tell us a little bit about what is the, the value proposition of smart rebalancing. And before we get into that, maybe just a little bit about how you ended up in this, this world of this wonderful world of investing. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Sean, and, and real pleasure to be here. Um, my, my background is I, I started my career at the World Bank's pension plan in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., about a $10 billion fund in the late 1990s. And I helped put an asset allocation to work in the late 1990s, Mm -hmm. uh, which had the typical stock bond mix of 60% stocks and 40% bonds. I left to go work at J.P. Morgan in 1999. Mm -hmm. And when the tech bubble hit, I called up my colleagues saying, please don't rebalance back to that 60-40 portfolio because it's no longer optimal. But absent any other instructions that had been put in place, they just naively rebalanced back to that portfolio. Mm -hmm. And the fund took a hit. At which point a light bulb went off in my head, which is why don't asset owners adopt the same practices that asset managers like J.P. Morgan use more active to be more active and to be more tactical mm-hmm. on the single biggest risk of your fund, which is asset allocation. Right. Uh, so we founded the business in 2002 with the simple idea that this is something that we could actually help CIOs of pension funds do themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we built a software that we were licensing out to various folks, Don Pierce being one of the, the stellar examples yes. of how this works. Yep. But then over time, because a lot of these pension funds didn't have either the right governance structure or the resources to support internal management of these programs, we were encouraged to essentially set up an asset management company mm-hmm. where clients delegate that decision to us. Mm-hmm. And the value proposition is incredibly simple, which is that there are about 50 basis points to about 100 basis points of untapped alpha mm-hmm. embedded in every fund, uh, which can be captured for no change in either the investment policy statement or the manager lineup. Uh, and I'll tease it up with that so that we can dig into that. But that's yeah. really the fundamental principle is there's alpha that can be captured on the entire fund. Right by running an intelligent strategy that we call smart rebalancing. Smart rebalancing. And yeah, and so for the listeners, you know, I mean, it is, you know, some of them may not be familiar with the pensions, um, but quite often pension funds are understaffed. And so, you know, for some funds, they do have the staffing and that's where they would license the technology and they may have their own inputs and tweak it. And, you know, they've got the capabilities and the brain power to do it. Others are going to be, you know, one or two 
person teams and may have to delegate that authority. Uh, and that's where the asset management overlay would come in. Correct. And then you take into account the underlying asset allocation of each individual pension fund because they are usually, you know, can be quite different. Uh, so you may have uh, funds that have private credit and, you know, farmland and timber and other funds that are kind of closer to the traditional, what you were talking about with World Bank, 60-40 allocation. Correct. And so you use that to kind of start as your baseline. Exactly. The starting point is we take the client's underlying strategic asset <coughs> allocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when the board approves the strategic allocation, they also typically approve ranges within yes. which these assets are out to float because there is market drift. Yeah, for our listeners, that would be like, you know, for us, we may have a 10% allocation of small cap, but that range that the board has approved could be 5% to 15 Exactly correct. Yeah. And historically, most pension funds haven't used that range mm-hmm. for any value. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of been an operational issue yeah. just so that you don't have to rebalance constantly. Constantly, yeah. And so our aha moment was, why don't we use that range to actually take intentional positions, mm-hmm. which is based on rigorous analysis of the relative value of assets, mm-hmm. and by just reallocating the asset allocation at the top level of the fund, there is about 50 to 100 basis points on the entire fund so this that gets you can into capture. Kind of like, you know, what is your source of the untapped alpha? Well, it's optimizing this. Exactly. It's yeah. taking advantage of something that's already in your investment policy statement, mm-hmm. which is the flexibility to be within the range, and now saying, let's actually monetize that mm-hmm. by putting in place a program that takes positions inside that range. Inside the range. So you're always in compliance with the policy, but now you're extracting alpha mm-hmm. on top of the entire fund. And then in terms of um, how you're determining, you know, how you want to be tactically tilting. Correct. Um, You know, I'm going to kind of jump around here a little bit, but going to the, is it a black box or is it something that you're talking with your clients about and saying, hey, you know, here's what we're thinking as our baseline strategy. You may want to tweak this slightly because of your personality of your board, right? Maybe they have a little less tolerance for... Uh, you know, uh, style drift or whatever, or momentum, or maybe they're more in favor of value, whatever. That's right. Yeah. So the analogy I use is this is essentially a GPS for your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Just like you jump in the car and you're going from point A to point B, today we put put on our GPS because it not only gives us the direction, but also potentially the speed limit, traffic Mm -hmm. jams, accidents, et cetera. Right. What we thought about 17 years ago was there was a need for pension funds, endowments, uh, you know, foundations, whatever, to have a GPS that mm-hmm. gave them a sense of here's a better way to tilt your portfolio given the current environment. Mm-hmm. And rather than make it a black box, we wanted it to be completely transparent because you've got to explain to your fiduciaries essentially why mm-hmm. you've taken the position. Right. you got to be able to back that up and support it. Essentially. So what we came up with is what we call a smart approach, which is a systematic management of assets mm-hmm. using a rules-based technique. Okay. And so the whole idea is if you write simple rules that take either economic data or valuation data or sentiment or momentum, Mm -hmm. then if you can put this rule in place when it gets triggered, you know exactly what factor is triggering your decision to be overweight or underweight Mm -hmm. equities relative to your strategic portfolio. So the whole goal was to make it as transparent as possible, but to just have the robust process that asset managers are using. Right. On selecting underlying securities. Yeah, when I was in the hedge fund space, you know, we used a lot of systematic approaches to make sure that we stayed kind of, kind of almost looked, thought of as like guardrails. Exactly. You know, it kind of forces you to not be emotional, to not get caught up in all the nonsense that's going on with the noise. Right. 
and to say, okay, you know, our systems that we've researched and that we feel good about are telling us that we need to, you know, now shift our positions. That's exactly correct. And that's what you're trying to help the asset owners do. It can be very hard when it's, you know, right in your face. You know, it's like Mike Tyson used to say, everybody's got a plan to get punched in the face. <laughs> uh, and certainly when you're dealing with billions and billions of dollars, right. you know, there is a, a, a tendency to kind of backslide into being somewhat emotional about how you think about things. So exactly. having that systematic approach can be very And again, useful. to use an interesting analogy, when a football coach walks onto the field, even if they have the star running back in the league, mm-hmm. they're not going to run that running back on every play. Right. Right? There's a different right. play when you're on the 20-yard line and it's third down. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're on the 50-yard line and it's first down. Yeah. And essentially what these rules are doing for you is it's kind of putting that playbook into a system mm-hmm. uh, and letting the data actually trigger when that play gets called. Correct, yeah. So to your point, you've done all the homework ahead of time to say these are the factors that we think drive assets. Mm-hmm. And then essentially as the market and the data evolves you know, every day, that rule gets triggered and it's like the coach calling in a different play only because the situation has changed. Yeah. So being prepared. You're being prepared. You've done the homework ahead of time. When it comes time to the decision, you're not scrambling to do the analysis. Right, right. And what's involved in terms of the execution or implementation of these strategies? So I have my my core portfolio. I've got, you know, my growth bucket, probably a dozen managers there. I've got my income bucket, maybe six managers there. And I've got these diversifying asset pools like farmland and timber and Correct. mineral rights and different things. And I might have another, you know, dozen managers in that bucket. Right. Uh, so I'm a pretty busy guy as, you know, a one-man <laughs> operation. Uh, you know, uh, what is a realistic way of how this execution and implementation unfolds? And I guess we could take it in two parts. One would be for people that are licensing right. and one for that are using the asset management uh, offering. Let me start with the asset management and then yeah. I'll flip to the licensing because there, there are a lot of parallels. Yep. Essentially, our second innovation was to come out and say, instead of trying to physically move the cash between the assets, which is a very cumbersome operation, mm-hmm. why not run this as a futures overlay? Okay. Yep. So if I already have 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds, the futures overlay essentially says, let's shave... from the bonds Mm -hmm. and add 2% to the equities. Mm -hmm. And because you implemented with futures, it doesn't need to be funded. All you need is the cash for the margin, margin. which most most institutional investors are carrying anyhow as part of their frictional cash. Mm -hmm. So that's how the performance is purely net additive, is Mm -hmm. if you put a futures overlay that's not sucking cash from some other asset and it's generating its P&L, then that P&L is just essentially on the entire fund. Gotcha. because so, so the so on the asset management side, you guys are taking care of those futures uh, trades and rebalancing and tactical correct. tilts. Essentially, what happens mm-hmm. is the client size signs an IMA with us, yep. and literally all they need to do is set up an account at the custodian with this mm-hmm. margin cash. Mm-hmm. We set up the futures broker's account. We do the trading. We do the cash movement and everything. Yeah. And so the asset owner doesn't need to do anything thereafter. Gotcha. And we give them full transparency so they can see the next morning mm-hmm. where the portfolio is positioned. Because even you as a CIO are moving cash between cash coming into yeah. the fund, cash going out as benefits. So you can actually improve the decisions you make on mm-hmm. those sort of uh, parts of the portfolio, even though we don't typically get paid for it as yeah. well. And then how um, how often are you like uh, you know looking at the visibility into our portfolio in terms of you know the asset? managers and what have you so it's i guess it's probably the onus would be on the asset manager to say okay arun we are you know going to be shifting money to make you know benefits so every quarter i got to pull 
money out to pay benefits and I got to go take it out of different managers and we need to update you on that. And That's probably at best once a quarter. Yeah. And we don't need to know the manager level information. Mm-hmm. Asset allocation is more than adequate. It's more, so more it's a really more. simple statement that says, yeah. here's where we're allocated relative to our ranges mm-hmm. and our strategic. That allows us to then say, well, we think you should be moving a little bit more or a little That's bit right. less in that direction. And then on the futures contracts, are you are you playing across the curve on treasuries, you know, five years, 10 years, 30 years? Are you um, uh, using S&Ps and Russell 2000s? Or, you know, how does that all look? Like if we were peeling back the onion, right. uh, you know, I guess the most basic would be, okay, we're going to use a S&P 500, a 10-year bond. Right. And then we could move beyond that if we wanted to. Right. So typically what we're doing, and that's a, that's a perfectly good question because those are the primary risks for U.S. Mm-hmm. funds. What we try to do is we try to match each asset class with the basket of futures. So mm-hmm. in the U.S., it'll be the S&P and the Russell 2. Yep. Uh, IFA, we'll have a basket of, current, uh, of countries that we are proxying as well, Japan, mm-hmm. Europe, you know, FTSE, et cetera, mm-hmm. emerging markets. So we try to capture that entire sort of global equity bucket. Okay. Within fixed income, it'll be the whole curve. Two mm-hmm. to fifty uh, to the thirty-year, 30, um, and then some clients have commodities. Mm-hmm. In which case, we'll proxy the commodities. That's okay. on the liquid side. Yeah. On the illiquid side, we've had some innovative clients who've said, "Let's proxy the illiquids with futures," mm-hmm. because even though there is basis risk in a bear market like two thousand and eight, if you're taking the beta out of private equity or MLPs. Mm-hmm. That's a source of added value as right. well. Another source of alpha for the manager. Exactly right. And, and risk management, right? right. The, the main benefit of this is you get the alpha, but if you design it really well, it becomes kind of part of that diversifier bucket mm-hmm. because we've designed it to do extremely well when the underlying portfolio struggles. Right. Like 2008, Q4, 2018. Right. You know, growth is struggling. You want something to be the buffer mm-hmm. so that you don't have to liquidate assets to be able to pay your benefits. So right. this is what we're hoping provides that kind of aspect gotcha. to it as well. And then uh, for the individuals that say they have a much bigger organization, I mean, they got 30 people or 40 people. Correct. Uh, I presume they would be the clients that most likely would license software and say, we're going to have one or two people looking at our asset allocation probably as on the team already. Correct. And they would take that function and then maybe they would... Um, uh, you know, look for the signals. That's right. I would presume they would work with you on kind of um, how they want to generate signals and what the rules are that they feel comfortable with. Correct. What rules suit the personality of their board and sponsor and what have you. Exactly. And then they would um, uh, use the software to give them signals and then take the execution to the execution desk to actually, Correct. yeah. And I think, you know, you've sat on both sides of the fence, so you know how this works. Getting good ideas about what moves markets, it's mm-hmm. in the public domain, right? This yeah. is not incredibly sort of uh, hidden. There are academic papers, there's bank research notes, mm-hmm. your asset managers very often come and tell you this. What people lacked was the ability to convert that idea that came across their desk into a formal process mm-hmm. that was testable and then actionable as well. Right. And that's what our Alpha Engine software did, is it basically gave them a baked-in process to build a GPS. Mm-hmm. Once the GPS is built, then either we can help them with the execution because we've got the full execution platform mm-hmm. set up, or they can go and hire a third-party sort of passive vendor like, you know, you know there are a couple of vendors who do this now at mm-hmm. relatively low cost okay. to yep. do the execution yep. themselves. Yeah. But because we've built our technology to not only build the GPS, but then to do the execution, mm-hmm. if they want that whole platform, we're happy to, to sort of that, yeah. It's a partnership yep. saying, what pieces do you want to take on? Most asset owners would much rather be in the mode of saying, let's build the GPS. We mm-hmm. want to look at the signals. 
we're not really compensated in yeah. the execution, and that's typically outsourced yeah. as well. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, uh, coming from the Chicago board trade and the futures pits, you know, I mean, you may as well have somebody that's focused and specialized on that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. you don't want to miss a. Uh, a role of a oil contract right. and then suddenly have oil delivered to yes. your offices yes. in Darrell. Yeah, I had a, a friend who's uh, who once was delivered eggs. <laughs> exactly, because they had bought the contract. Yeah, yeah. And it so, you know, of course, at the exchange delivery site, but they had to you know, sure. go through the whole process of getting them back out. And exactly. Mess. Yeah, so that's essentially where, because that's something we do for a living, mm -hmm. we're happy to do for the clients, See, but if they already that. have their own execution agent, that's fine too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, futures, of course, would always imply that there may be leverage involved. And maybe we could talk a little bit about that and okay. how that uh, plays into the portfolio and, and how, uh, how pensions and, you know, okay. other asset owners kind of address that question of leverage. Okay. Some, so, some funds will have it where the IPS says no leverage. Other funds will say, yes, we can have leverage up to 30% or something. So the nice thing about futures is it's all exchange traded. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly liquid, extremely yeah. low cost. Price discovery is, is pretty much you know at the max level that you mm -hmm. could get in this industry. So that's why we started with that contract because we figured it's the most approved contract mm -hmm. that you can get for an institutional investor. Yeah. The second thing that we did is we designed it to have net zero leverage, which mm -hmm. meant that if I'm overweight one asset class, let's say stocks by 2%, mm -hmm. then I should be underweight everything else so that it nets out to zero. Mm -hmm. Is that netting on a like kind of a notional basis of the cash value of the contracts That's or correct. on the risk? Okay. On the cash value on of the, the contracts. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, brilliant question, actually, because the risk will be non-zero, mm -hmm. but the net position will be zero. Gotcha. But there will be gross leverage as a result, yeah. because if you take the absolute value of the positive and the negative, it adds mm -hmm. up to gross leverage. Yes. Um, the way clients have managed that is they can set a gross limit uh, uh, constraint in the, in the investment management agreement as well. Mm -hmm. But to your point, we're seeing a lot more clients now accepting leverage, even mm -hmm. in the strategic asset allocation, which you know, was unheard of many yeah. years ago, because the expected returns are coming down so dramatically. Yeah that people are feeling that the only way to achieve a 7% return is I've got to lever up the strategic. Yeah. yeah. And so one of the attractive aspects of this program is it doesn't require gross leverage at mm -hmm. the full fund level to extract that extra 50 basis points. Yeah. And if it does well when your portfolio is hurting, like in Q4 2018, mm -hmm. it's kind of dampening the volatility of your fund. So you don't right. need to crank up the risk to potentially get more return. So yeah, I mean, that's probably something we should also talk about. So the, you know, target is to try to add 50 to 100 basis points, uh, which of course over time is, you know, quite valuable to a pension or any asset owner. Correct. Um, in terms of dampening volatility or increasing volatility, Correct. how does that play out typically? So that's actually, we got lucky because one of our first clients in 2007, when they mm -hmm. asked us to design the program, asked us to do well, that mm -hmm. is make money, but they wanted us to make money when their strategic portfolio was hurting mm -hmm. um, because they wanted the overall portfolio volatility to be dampened. Yeah. And so we were enormously successful in 2008, mm -hmm. which then led us to go back to the drawing board and say, you know, we're not particularly smarter than the average. So mm -hmm. how did we come out on this positive outcome? Yeah. And what we realized is finance theory kind of makes a mistake where they suggest that you should look for assets that are uncorrelated to the strategic. Mm -hmm. What you really want is when the strategic portfolio is going up, you want positive correlation. Yeah. And when the strategic portfolio is going negative down, you correlation. want negative correlation. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that determines what factors you actually incorporate into the portfolio mm -hmm. and how you build it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of been our calling card, which is if you can get this unique dynamic negative correlation, which mm -hmm. is make money in 2017 yeah. when the market's rallying, but then make money in 2018, mm -hmm. then you potentially add alpha without increasing the volatility. Yeah. If you double the bet that's already in the strategic portfolio by being long equities all the time, right. then you're cranking up the volatility, yeah. you're cranking up the leverage as well. Now, with interest rates, you know, where they are today and with the global central banks and quantitative easing programs, and, you know, we're starting at such a, so much lower of a rate, right? I Correct. think of 175-ish, let's call it, on a 10-year right now. And, and you know, negative, negative in, in Europe and yeah. Japan, yeah. Uh, two of the other biggest markets in the world. Um is that affecting the way the models are positioning in terms of, I mean, we, you know, I assume like in 2008, you know, big positive alpha generator was probably the long bond exposure. Right. Right. Which would then give you also the liquidity to actually ring the register because it's futures contracts. Correct. So you've got a duration of whatever, you know, it's called eight years. You get a 1% move. It's 8%. Right. You know, this is big stuff for uh, asset owners. Uh, but now we're at one and a half percent, and maybe we go to zero. It's very possible. Uh, but uh, does that impact the way that that the tactical overlays would kind of come into play and the future expectations for the overlays? I think what we're building up in the system is a lot of volatility, right? We've had mm -hmm. volatility trending down yeah. as interest rates are coming down as well. So in the last five years, the return expectation was relatively low. Mm -hmm. But then if you get another blow up like you had in 2008, that's when the vols explode for the same right. range and you can get a lot more alpha potential. Mm -hmm. So I think the way the, the markets are evolving now is we're kind of setting ourselves up for some kind of a correction, whether it's mm -hmm. in the bond market or the stock market or both. Yeah. And I think that's where we're seeing a lot more endowments, foundations, and even pension funds starting to say we need to have some process by mm -hmm. which we manage this. Right? We just can't blindly be 70% in equities if you're an endowment anymore. Right. Right. The question is, what's the protection? Probably even higher than that when you factor in the leverage of the private equity funds that are in the funds and the VC. Yeah, close to 80%, else, yeah. 90% yeah. actually. Yeah. What's made it a little bit harder is with all the tweets and the central banks, mm -hmm. Data which was traditionally considered readable and, and sort of, you know, sensible yeah. to apply. In, good inputs. Yeah. yeah. Nowadays doesn't work the yeah. same way. Because if yeah. you get a good data point, the market sees that as, oh, that's terrible because they're going to raise rates and it mm -hmm. sells off, which is yeah. very counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, so you will have pieces of this puzzle like the economic stuff, which mm -hmm. is struggling when the central banks are in play. Yeah. But that's where the momentum part just rides the, 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 yeah. the trend and says, okay, buy, buy, buy. It's just observation. It's very interesting that pretty much all the macro hedge fund guys that I knew uh, when I was in that space, you know, five, ten years ago, are pretty much out of the space now. You know, macroeconomics right. 101, all those models have pretty much broken down. Correct. So funds that were managing $20, 30000000000 billion in the past are now managing Shut a down. couple billion or out of business. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you've also seen, you know, I mean, completely different side note, but... Uh, many of them have closed down and then shifted into this uh, blockchain technology, Correct. which is also very interesting to me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, okay, so, you know, kind of thinking about, you know, futures and uh, what have you, uh, maybe might, might, might be interesting to kind of talk about what could go wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, a, of course, the first thing that any CIO is going to ask is, yeah. you know, what's my downside risk and how do I mitigate it, and even when it's an overlay strategy that's meant to dampen volatility and improve performance. And, and it's the perfect uh, transition from your comment about your hedge fund friends. Mm -hmm. Like any investment strategy, you're going to be wrong. Yeah. Uh, and 
in our business, I would say we're wrong 40% of the months at least, right? Mm -hmm. A, you have to have the humility to know that, and B, you have to communicate that to the client, saying mm -hmm. be prepared to be wrong 40% of the time because mm -hmm. that's part of the process. The reason you can get away with being wrong 40% of the time is the passive strategic asset allocation mm -hmm. loses money 45% of the time. So if you mm -hmm. just shave those months off by a few, yeah. that's kind of what you're doing. So this yeah. is not market timing where you're just going into the market and out of it all the time. Mm -hmm. These are incremental shifts where you're just trying to change the percentage of time you're wrong. Yeah. And I think the way we've tried to mitigate it, so not only did the macro guys go out of business, I worked for a CTA, you know, I was with FX Concepts. Mm -hmm. uh, my co-CIO was with Campbell. Mm -hmm. CTAs have also had a tough time, oh, 2017, yeah. 2018. Absolutely because the trend didn't quite work. So you have to diversify your model between mm -hmm. what we've done is the four buckets, both economic valuation, sentiment, momentum. Mm -hmm. But then also we've had to speed up the models because the old days of taking an economic variable that came yeah. out once a month yeah. doesn't work anymore. Right, right. The, the information it's playing field is pretty flat and level. Right. And things move quicker and prices are So you have to diversify, diversify, diversify. Yeah. And you have to basically make sure that as things are evolving, so like, Pre-2008, if somebody said sentiment really mattered in my decision-making, mm -hmm. they got laughed out of the yeah. room. Today, the market can go risk-on and risk-off in a matter of day. Yeah. In fact, September of 2018, the market's rallying like crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Our models are underweight, and we're starting to think, are we wrong? Yeah. And then suddenly, October comes wrong, it goes risk-off, yep. and bingo, we're looking like geniuses. Yeah. So you have to know what's driving it, and that's why you don't want this to be a black box. Yeah so that at least you feel the comfort of saying it's positioned this way because the economic data is weak yeah. or sentiment has changed yeah. or the trend is in my favor. Got to be able to keep the board uh, on board. Okay. Exactly. Right? You don't want them you know, Panicking pulling out at the wrong moment. Exactly right. And so you so. have to have that justification and prep them for the fact that it will be wrong mm -hmm. and these are the periods in which it will struggle. Yeah. So that hopefully when it does struggle at that time, they, they remember that you did give them the warning that there is a chance that this will underperform yeah. as well, right? Well, so. thank you very much for coming out and uh, stopping by. I mean, I do think this is a really interesting source of potentially adding alpha to uh, portfolios. And of course, like we talked earlier, you know, uh, you know, with the lower return expectations, every basis point, every basis point does truly count, you know? <laughs> um, so for, for listeners that wanted to follow you, is there a good way for them to follow you on social media or... Uh, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn quite actively, yeah. uh, but I'm happy to take any emails. I write a lot of papers yeah. and op-eds for a whole bunch of journals. Uh, so you know, if anybody wants to look at it, and maybe we'll try to get some. Yeah, we'll get some on the show notes. Absolutely, yeah, get some show notes on there. That'll be terrific. I appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you fun. very much, Arun. Appreciate thank you, so you coming much, in today. Take care. Thank you.